Dear Diary, I just got you for my birthday, so I feel like I should tell you a little bit about myself before I start spilling all of my deepest, darkest secrets. Not that I really have any, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I'm 16 years old. I have long, straight, dark hair and dark eyes. I begged my mother to let me bleach my hair, but she said no, because it would all fall out and ruin my chances of being a daffodil princess this year. Let's see, what else? I love being out in nature. My girlfriends and I went camping with our youth group last summer, and I never wanted to be in the cabin. (laughs) They started calling me nature girl. Hmm, I, I have a little sister. She always wants to copy everything I do, and I swear, Marjorie, if you are reading this, I will know, and I will tell mom. Oh, I'm a sophomore in high school. I have three best friends who I do everything with, and I don't have a boyfriend. I wish I did, though. Sometimes it seems so hard to get a boy to pay attention to you, you know? Well, anyway, that's all for now. Sarah. Dear Diary, not much happened today. The spring fling is coming up at school. That's a big dance where everyone goes with a date. I'm worried that no one will ask me, even though I guess I could go with my neighbor Danny if I had to. He's always trying to get me to go to the movies with him. We've known each other since we were kids. We would sneak out in the summer and go swimming in the creek together. One time he told me he thought I was the prettiest girl in school, but he's like my brother, so I pretended that I had water in my ear and I didn't hear him. I feel kind of bad about that. He was nice though. Talk to you later, Sarah. Dear Diary, Today was the spring fling, and I did go with Danny. We danced all night, and it was a lot better than I thought. At the end of the dance, he kissed me, and I thought I might float all the way home. We walked home together, and his house came first. He offered to walk me the extra block home, but I said no. It was close, and I would be safe. Plus, I wanted to run the rest of the way so I could call all my friends. While I was walking, a car pulled up next to me. It was an old, tan Volkswagen bug, and there was a man inside. He had a cast on his arm, and he told me that his car had been stalling out and he needed help checking under the hood. He got out and asked me to get in and push the starter when he said so. I'm a nice girl. I have been taught to help others, to respect my elders, and to trust grown men. So I got in the car. I got in the car, and within seconds, I knew I shouldn't have. I was just a half a block from Danny's house. I could scream his name and he would probably hear me, but before I could draw a breath, I heard a loud crack and everything went black. When I woke up, the man was driving the car and I was tied in the place where the passenger seat should be. My head was bleeding into my eyes so I couldn't see very well. We finally stopped and when he opened the door, all I could see around was the highway and trees, nature. He dragged me into the woods and did horrible things to me. I kept remembering the teachers telling us that if you ever got attacked, you shouldn't resist. If you fight, they'll kill you. So I laid there, so still, so quiet. I thought of how magical everything had been just an hour ago. Before long, I felt his hands tighten around my neck and the trees started to blur and go dark. I thought of my friends, of my mom and dad, my sister. Finally, I thought about a warm summer day and Danny telling me he thought I was the prettiest girl in school. I wish I had listened. It was then I realized that I was looking at myself from above. I was gone. It would take months for them to find me, and there wouldn't be much left when they did. I wasn't the first. I wasn't the last. 
And if you're sitting there thinking that this could never happen to you, that you would be smarter, that you would see through it or react more quickly, think again. And let that boy walk you home. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would would be be dead. I'm going to cry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Beans. <laughs> well, we made it to Ted Bundy. We did. Happy one year anniversary. Happy one year, Holly. Oh, my goodness. And it's pretty much exactly today. Yeah. Tomorrow we released our first one. Oh. I know. A whole year. Well, today when we're recording it. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Not, not for you guys. <laughs> I'm so proud of us. Yes. And and not just us, but also everyone who has listened and shared and supported us and kept We Would Be Dead going even when we were busy or sad or, you know, stuck in a terrifying pandemic. Because mm. that happened. It did. I love all the people we've met, and I'm so glad we've been able to connect with them in a time when we all felt the sting of loneliness and claustrophobia. And I can't wait to see where year two takes us. Me either. Yay. Um, and I have to take a second to thank you, Leslie, who made this wild dream I threw around a lot a reality. Oh. Yeah, I would never have done it without you. Well, we would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's all cry for the first 15 minutes of this one. God, okay. <laughs> well, that being said, now is a better time than ever to support We Would Be yeah. Dead. Like my segue? Yeah. <laughs> because we have a ton of new and exciting things in the work for, works for 2021. We are planning to be on camera a little more this year. And so our faces really do need to look their best. Oh, they sure do. You know? And right now, we're a little dry, mm-hmm. a little dull. Yeah. And I have tried every skincare method out there short of Botox. I'm not against Botox. And I found that nothing works quite like validation. Agreed. I mean, with the exception of all Shore Soaps' beautiful products. but Yeah, but there's always a little bit of validation in that for me, so. Yeah, you know what? I felt it. Mm-hmm. When I was putting my serum on this morning, I was like, this feels like validation. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Secret ingredient. I let it out there. <laughs> I love it. So if you want to see our faces more in this new year and not be terrified by our visages, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make all the difference. And if you want to be part of the engine that keeps We Would Be Dead running, you can head on over to Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you will receive access to our live monthly campfire stories, our additional monthly podcast, 30-minute horror movies, discounts in our merch store. Did I mention we have merch? Because we do, and it's super cute. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think we just got some new, like, sizes in and stuff, yeah? We did, yeah. So um, I will update the shop, and we'll have some more zip-up hoodies. I also uh, was looking into a different kind of hoodie as well, maybe something just a little bit thicker. Okay. And um, they had it in, like, a nice hunter green. So I was going to try it out and see how it goes out. So I just got a couple 
and we'll have it up there. That sounds great. So check out our new merch, and if you're a patron, you get that discount. Patrons also get a little gift from us and much, much more. And if all of that is a little overwhelming for you, you can simply share our content to your social media feed. Then your friends can be fiends, and we can all hang out together. I love friends. I do, too. It's fun here. We it like is. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of campfire stories and anniversaries, we'll be having our live Fancy Lady Regency-era campfire anniversary party on the 19th. I simply cannot wait. Yes, it's going to be a delight. And this one is for everyone. Yes. Yay, it's a party and you're all invited. John Radicasa is turning us into Bridgerton-worthy Fancy Ladies. Uh, there will be champagne. We'll tell you stories from a different era to escape our own for a little mo- while. Um, and it's going to be great and silly and fun. <laughs> I hope a boy asked me to dance. I don't know. He might. Mm, mark it on my card. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, patrons. You will still be getting a little exclusive content that night. Um, probably all like the getting ready giggles. Either that or we'll do an after party. We haven't really nailed that down yet. But there'll be something for patrons. Cool. Uh, and so we can't wait to celebrate with you. And uh, I think that's all I have in the news. Leslie, do you have anything to add? No. No? No. <laughs> not, not this time? No, let me <laughs> flip through here. Um, Leslie's flipping through her tablet. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, then let's get on with the show. I guess I should preface this whole thing by saying the title for this podcast came from a text exchange Leslie and I had about Ted Bundy. Well, we we texted through a lot of documentaries, to be honest. But the Bundy tapes was the one where we talked specifically about how we identified with victims, how we understood that things like this happened to real people, and that in their shoes, we probably would all be powerless. Even those of us who like to talk big and say that we would have gotten away are just holding on to a fantasy, really. In the end, we both admitted that if a handsome man approached us and asked for help, we would be dead. Yeah. And so... I promised our listeners and myself that if we made it to a year, we would cover Ted, which is what we're calling him. I refuse to glamorize any murderer with the last name treatment. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. But this is especially important with Ted. His danger came with his approachableness and his charm. Nobody who goes by just their menacing last name has that. So while we go along for this two-week ride, I need you to get Ted into your headspace as a man not the boogeyman. Only then can you really see what he was. And what he was, was pure evil. So let's begin at the beginning. Theodore Robert Cowell, yes, Cowell, he was not always a Bundy. Hmm. Interesting, right? Was born on November 24th, 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell, who went by Louise because her mom's name was Eleanor. And he was born at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Originally, this place was called the Elizabeth Lund Home for Friendless Women. Oh. <laughs> I love name changes, like the history of them. I know. I think they realized that was like even more insulting than unwed mothers. Yeah. <laughs> and they just took a more direct approach. Mm-hmm. Friendless women? That's rough. We just ain't got nobody. <laughs> Except this baby. Yep. We don't really want that baby. See, they're not really friendless then. You always got a friend with your kid. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I want to have children. So So you have a friend all the time? just have a friend, yeah. It's always there. That's what they say about like little girls. They're Mm -hmm. just like you always have a best friend. Yeah. 
Until they get real bitchy during their <laughs> teen years. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's happening. So what are these places, you ask? Well, back in those days, if you were pregnant without being married, your life was pretty much ruined. Single mothers were only acceptable if their husbands had died. Women were even known to marry their rapists at that point in history because if there was a child, there had to be a wedding. Homes like the Elizabeth Lund home gave these women a place to carry out their pregnancy in secret, deliver their babies in a hospital, and have them immediately adopted out, like as soon as possible. Sometimes they went back to the home, but these... The idea was to get them adopted as infants right away. Then the women would return to their lives, claiming they had spent a year abroad studying or living with their ailing grandparent or whatever else excuses nearly a year's absence from society. So they would be there during their pregnancy so that no mm-hmm. one would see them pregnant. Right. Very New England. Very, very New England. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, she spent a year abroad. Oh, of course. I won't question that at all. What language do you speak now? Mm. None language. (laughs) So the Lundholm even went so far as providing the residents with a bowl of wedding rings by the front door so they could slip one on when they went out and no one would question them. Oh. I thought that was really interesting. Yes. (laughs) Also very New England. (laughs) They would all check into the hospital with the same last name, Lund, just like the home, when it was time to deliver their baby, and this would leave them completely anonymous on all public records. Adoption contracts that were drawn up with the Lund home had a mandatory 99-year gag order, and it was top priority that the residents of the Lund home for unwed mothers be perfectly anonymous and leave without a trace of ever having been pregnant. Which is kind of frightening to me. Right. That's very scary. And not all women went there voluntarily. Some of them were put there by their parents because they didn't want that kind of disgrace. Of course. I'm sure it was mostly by their parents. Yeah, a lot of them, it it was by their parents. But Ted's story doesn't go exactly like that. Louise wanted to take her baby boy home, but in order to do so, she would have to frame the situation so that it appeared that her mother had actually given birth to Ted, and she was simply his much older sister. There is a lot of speculation as to who Ted's father actually was, Some say his birth certificate listed an Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. Others say it was just, quote, unknown. And I'm inclined to believe the latter, as this was the policy at the Lund home, and Ted himself would have made an effort to find his father later in life had there been a man listed on his birth certificate. That's the kind of guy Ted was. There are still others who speculate that it was Louise's own father, Samuel Cowell, who identified as Ted's father anyway, who fathered her child in a shameful act of incest. This would make sense in that he kept the child and acted as Ted's father anyway and flew into a rage anytime someone asked about their late-in-life baby or asked questions about who Ted's father was. Ah. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of mixed information about Samuel Cowell. Ted himself said he was a kind and loving man, that he identified with his grandfather and clung to him. But other family members remember Sam differently. They claim that he was an abusive and tyrannical bully, that he was a racist, a woman-hating bigot who abused his wife and daughters horribly. In one incident, he threw his youngest daughter, Julia, down a flight of stairs simply for sleeping in. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense that Ted would idolize him then. Exactly. It was also said that Samuel would speak to unseen voices. So he had something going on too. Hmm. So as Leslie said, if Ted identified with him, It all makes quite a bit of sense. It also makes sense in regards to Ted's grandmother-mother, Eleanor, 
who was a timid and obedient woman that received electroshock treatment several times for her severe depression. Oh. Which happens when your husband is an abusive monster who believes that women belong barefoot and silent in the kitchen. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Another case for Ted being the product of incest is that children born of first-degree incest have a 50% greater chance of ending up with some form of mental illness. And I'm pretty sure we can all agree that something was not right under the hood with Ted. We'll get to exactly what that might have been and come back to this in episode two. But for now, we are in the Philadelphia home of Samuel and Eleanor Cowell in 1946, and Ted is being raised as their son alongside their fully grown daughter and their younger daughter, Um, And these were Ted's sisters. So his sister was Louise, and the younger one was Julia. So, Leslie, what was 1946 like? What was the world like when Ted came into it and Louise decided she so desperately needed to hide this baby? Sure. Well, bikinis Mm. made their debut in Paris. Don't wear them pregnant. No. Um, It was created by French designer Louis Reed, and he got the name from the recent atomic testing done by the U.S. at Bikini Atoll. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. wonder why he made that connection. I don't know. Maybe he just liked the name Bikini, like after he like saw it on television. Maybe they were like a bright green color originally or something. I don't know. Uh, they wouldn't make it to the U.S. till the 50s, and then it was mostly just seen on like movie stars, but uh, before slowly making it into like mainstream fashion. Tupperware was developed by Earl Tupper in 1938 and was introduced to U.S. consumers in 1946. Huh. It was not a big hit because no one knew what to do with it. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Just wasn't like a normal thing. Obviously, we know that Tupperware now is is an easy way for us to have like quick dinners and Mm -hmm. things like that and, um, you know, put leftovers in. But that wasn't really how most homemakers did food. It was kind of, they you know, they'd go to the shop that day a lot or a couple times a week and just make dinner. Interesting. Um, But so the company hired housemakers or women who were looking for a job after World War II to host Tupperware parties for other housemakers and could then demonstrate and test the products to potential buyers. And then this worked beautifully and the sales boomed through the next decade. Interesting. Yeah. So again, this is, we're coming out of like World War II era. So Ted was a baby boomer. Mm, Of course he was a baby (laughs) boomer. Uh, The microwave oven was invented in America by Percy L. Spencer. So that will make the scene soon. AT&T announces the first car phone. Back then? Back then, yeah. That's interesting. I know. I thought so, too. I was like, how? It's like 1940s Zach Morris was hanging out. (laughs) I know. It was probably the hugest thing in the car. (laughs) (laughs) It was the size of the seat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Babies born this year were the start of the baby boom generation. Uh, Some women were just excited to have their husbands back. Uh, But in the media, it was being pushed for women to marry young, start a family, be a mother, and a housemaker. Now, this wasn't a new concept to many women, obviously. That sounds like an age-old story. But while all men were at war, the women were there working their asses off in the factories. And a lot of women started to see, like, a whole new life for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they could be mothers and workers or that they had— a whole other purpose. Like, oh, I could just work and maybe not have to have a family. Yeah. And I can take care of myself. But then the men came back and that kind of ruined it. (sighs) Having all of these kids was like part of the agenda in America. One of the things was that they thought that we were having all of these children to like up our numbers and to fight communists. (laughs) (laughs) We are breeding an army. (laughs) 
but this would also breed breathe in the new uh, wave of feminism that would we would later see in the 60s. So this was the start of them getting Excellent. like angry. Yeah. We love an angry woman. Yes. <laughs> also, uh, some of the reason the U.S. felt like they needed or wanted to grow their family was because after years of war and sacrifice, they saw a prosperous future and wanted their children to have everything that they had to sacrifice. So they were confident that the world would be better and that they could just bring in all of the, these new kids to keep growing it and being better. And it kind of was true. Yeah. Like they have, they are definitely going to be doing better than their parents were. They make more money. I wish they did that things. for their kids. I know. Yeah. The first children's TV show debuted and was called For the Children. Mm. <laughs> and had the famous ch- uh, children's puppet, Muffin the Mule. Wait, what? The fame? Yeah, so famous. Yes. <laughs> Muffin the Mule. We're going to have to find a picture of Muffin. Oh, it's adorable. <laughs> and excited. Bundy would have definitely, like, watched this show because it would have been the only children's show on. Little so. Ted and Muffin the Mule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I wrote Bundy there. It's okay. Everybody calls him that. I know. Okay. Toys from the 1940s were The Slinky, The Magic 8-Ball. Circus Sam the Balancing Man. That classic. Silly Putty. And Shoot the Moon. Shoot the Moon? I don't know. It sounds like a dumb game, though. Yeah. It probably has a gun and was like, here, little kid, shoot shoot some stuff. (laughs) Shoot the moon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In women's fashion, the 1940s were defined by a clean and slim silhouette with a somewhat military feel. Jackets, blouses, sweaters, and skirts were short and close-fitting all unadorned and with the requisite sharp shoulder pads. Those nice shoulder pads. Nice broad shoulder. (laughs) Long sleeves were out. Dresses were casual and pants and play suits became everyday attire. Mm. Men wore suits for special occasions made from ration materials as well as uh, sometimes until they had to be like worn out. So they would just wear out their suits a lot. They sometimes wore a v-neck sweater and vest or a knitted waistcoat and would usually wear them over like a shirt and tie. Classy. The military outfits of this time were very simply made, however. They did not come with pocket flaps or vests, and the trousers were made with pleats nor cuffs without Mm. them. Mm -hmm. An illicit item during the war was called the zoot suit. Yeah, zoot suits. Uh, This was an item that was usually worn in nightclubs. It can... Consisted of an oversized jacket, wide lapels, broad shoulders, and low crotches. Yeah. They <laughs> the were pink. stripy and fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that was like the young guys would wear them, and then it didn't really make it seen until a little bit later, but then was just out. <laughs> we're like, we got to get rid of these. <laughs> these low crotches aren't doing anything for us. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, and then the fashion around then would change pretty quickly because, so at the time, obviously with the war, a lot of fabric wasn't available. And so once fabrics became available again, the fashion changed really fast. Yeah. And that is what I have. I love it. Gives us a nice 40s picture. Yeah. Can you imagine now a man wearing a suit so much that he wore it out? No. (laughs) No, I cannot. It's unfathomable. You can't. I feel like the only person that would wear a suit all the time probably has a ton yeah, of suits. Yeah, has like 20 suits. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a foreign concept. They all wear hats all the time, too. I know. I love a hat. Me, too. Men, get back into that. Wear hats. Yeah. And not just like beanies, like a hat. Yeah, like wear a nice, crisp hat. Look good. Yeah. 
We're on board for it. You heard it I want here you first. to say hello and like tip your hat to us. <laughs> tip your hat, please. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Bring that back. I mean, we're feminists here and everything, yeah. but tip your hat. Right. I mean, I'll curtsy if you bring the hat back. Agreed. You know what? We make that promise here yes. at We Would Be Dead. If you tip your hat to us, we will curtsy. Yes. Please let that be a thing. Please let us have a live show one day. <laughs> Just come out and curtsy. Yes. Well, we will for our Regency. We yeah. will. Yeah. We should look up how we're supposed to do it and try to do the actual way. Okay. That's going to be a fun activity. Yes. John, you have to do it too. Okay, so now that we understand the 40s, um, that's how Ted lived with his grandparents in their house for three years as their child until 1950 when Louise changed her last name and moved across the country to Tacoma, Washington to live with cousins. She changed her last name to something innocuous like Nelson. I don't have it written down here, but it doesn't stay for long, so it doesn't really matter. And they don't say why she did it. But it sure does sound like a woman running from a bad situation, if you ask me. For sure. So the whole incest thing doesn't sound super far off. Um, While she was there, she met and married a man named Johnny Bundy, who formally adopted Ted. Poor Johnny is the source of that last name, which would become so infamous, and he seems like a real stand-up guy. Really? Yeah. He married Louise. He treated Ted like his own child. He and Louise had four more children together. He always tried to include Ted in their family unit. They went camping and had family birthday parties. They had like a very normal nuclear family life. But Ted was not into it. Hmm. Yeah, he didn't He didn't like Johnny. He knew he wasn't his father. And he was known to just like say like, well, that guy didn't is not my real father. And I don't think he's very bright or successful. So I wonder he, if he was getting some of that from his grandfather, too. Well, he moved across the country from him. Oh, right. So he, he wouldn't have been seeing him to my not. I mean, maybe phone calls and stuff, but yeah. remember, it's still like 1950. I don't know how much communication across the country happened. Right. Interesting. Kids but, remember that stuff, though. Yeah. I mean, I how, old you're was, right. how old was Ted? He was three when three. he left. I mean, he could store all he's probably remembering is that he was like ripped from yeah. his, his other parents. And that's true. He definitely does remember that and resent that. Um, and he he was mad that his mother met, remarried and that she had kids with another man that wasn't his father. Mm-hmm. Um, or or rather his sister, because at this point he still, this is very blurry. At this point he still thinks it's his sister. So it's probably very confusing for it's him. It's super confusing. Okay. This is how it's written everywhere too. So I don't understand why this this is like this. But okay, so these are big opinions for an elementary schooler, but they do inform who Ted becomes later in life. So now we'll get to how Ted found out his actual parentage. Okay. And there are two, re- three reports of this, and two of them say that he was nine years old when it happened. Mm. So this would have been a few years after um, Louise and Johnny got married, and it would be four years after he, or sorry, more than that, six years after he left Philadelphia. So he'd still be a little kid, and this would still breed a lot of resentment. Um, Ted told this story two different ways, himself. In one version, he says that he discovered his own birth certificate in a safe in the house, and he saw that his parentage on it was his sister and either another man or, quote, unknown. And in another version of the story, he claims that his cousin, whom he lived with um, when he moved out there, produced the document and said, see, Ted, you're a bastard, uh. and showed him that he, his mother was his sister and his father was unknown. And this was something that he wholly resented, obviously. He didn't want to be a bastard. And he then begun to resent his mother intensely, his real mother, 
for having lied to him, for having labored under the assumption for nine years that she was just his older sister. Anne Rule, who wrote his one of his definitive biographies and did know him at one point in his life, said that she strongly believed he didn't really have confirmation of his parentage until 1969 when he had his own documents for himself. Okay. But I do believe that he found out in one way or another as a child. Maybe he confirmed it later in life, but everything about him leads me to believe that he knew then. Right. I think I think that that's such a hard thing to keep, too, especially— you know, it could have come from the cousin or... I think that makes the most sense because that would make you so angry. Mm-hmm. All of it would make you angry, especially being called a bastard by your cousin. Right. And nobody in that time period, which we just talked about, wants to be a bastard. Right. And I'm sure he was probably trying to ask questions like, why did I move here with my sister? Why am yes. I not... I said that too. I commented on that too. It, it's, it's so strange that you would just leave your who you believe are your parents, right. with your older sister to move across the country. Right. Without knowing, like, that's my mom. So that's all very blurry. hmm Ted's early childhood was what most people would see as unremarkable. He went to school and earned high marks. He was known for being personable and charming. And his mother and stepfather gave their kids every advantage they could, as I mentioned before. And there really seemed to be no red flags other than Ted keeping himself a little removed from the four other children that belonged to Johnny and Louise. But blended families, um, like this isn't uncommon in a blended family. A lot of times the kid that is a half-sibling will grow up saying, well, I felt a little bit outside. So again, no red flags. But as we just discussed, I find it very strange that Ted thought it made sense as a child that he left his parents' house and just lived with his much older sister across the whole country. But that's what I mean. I feel like it didn't make sense to him, and that's why he was so angry about it. There seems to be very little available in the way of how she explained away that fact. Mm -hmm. That's not how things usually work either. And once you're in a school setting observing children with typical nuclear families— He would have seen the way things were different and even strange for him. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, although he never comments on it, we both have assumed that he did. Right. You go to school, you see other kids with their mom and dad. You're like, well, I live across the country from my mom and dad with my sister for absolutely no reason. Right. This is also a time in our history when we're still learning about child psychology. For sure. So, you know, they probably thought, well, especially at three— Moving him across the country. They're like, he won't remember this. That's not true. Oh, yeah. And two, you know, he doesn't, as long as he's being taken care of, it's fine. He doesn't really need to know that I'm his mom. Yeah. No, they kids want to know these things. They absolutely do. Yeah, they don't want to be lied to. Just tell them how it is. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and and there was very much an attitude of, like, kids will just adapt. They'll just believe whatever I tell them. They won't question things. But, you know, that's clear that that's not true either. What, he defi- what Ted definitely did do was resent the hell out of his mother. He believed that she kept him from his real father, deceived him, and acted outside of what society taught him to expect women to be, and that was subservient, kind, helpful, honest, nurturing housewives. It was, after all, the 50s, and this is the golden age of the white American housewife stereotype. They were everywhere. Society told women that they should be quiet, helpful, thin, beautiful, and available. Women who weren't these things were bad and deserved to be punished. And this is the era of, like, Donna Reed and Leave it to Beaver. Right. Um, So throughout high school, Ted did well academically and had lots of friends and girlfriends. There are some 
biographies and stuff that will report that he was a loner. He even said himself a few times that he was kind of a loner. However, all of his classmates will negate this. They refer to him as well-known and well-liked. Okay. I don't know why he needs to cultivate that image in some things, but I, I'm, I tend to believe the people around him over him. Plus, it makes more sense later when he was well-liked yeah. at yeah. first. There's nothing that says he was a loner right. anywhere. Ted wasn't much for school sports, but he was a relatively good downhill skier, which is such a rich white boy sport. Yeah. And so fits the image that Ted really liked to cultivate for himself. The only problem was that he didn't really come from skiing vacation money. So he would just steal ski equipment and forge lift tickets. Because if there is one thing Ted Bundy loved, it was murdering women. But if there were two things Ted Bundy (laughs) loved, it was murdering women and stealing. Yes. Little attention is usually given to Ted's proclivity for petty theft, but he stole all the time consistently. Okay. And I believe this is just another example of his sense of entitlement. He just wants things and takes them. Yeah, absolutely. So Ted's high school career was not without trouble, though. He was arrested twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. Remember, there's two things Ted Bundy likes. It's killing women and stealing. And we'll get to the women killing part soon. But once he turned 18, Ted's record was expunged, as is par for the course in Washington State. We can't be ruining this nice white boy's life with silly things he did as a teen. No, absolutely not. Oh, such potential. Yes. And this would be a running theme for Ted. The way he looked and acted made the world think he was an asset at face value, and they never once considered that looks can be deceiving. Ted graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in the spring of 1965 and was accepted to the University of Puget Sound, where he went for exactly one year before transferring to the University of Washington. In 1968, during his first year at UW, Ted met and fell in love with a woman named Diane Edwards. Now, in Anne Rule's book, she is referred to, I believe, as Stephanie Brooks. And then subsequently, many, many, many other reports go on to just take this as a fact. That's not her name. Her name is Diane Edwards. Um, And this would be his first step into the path to darkness. Does this mean I think it's Diane's fault? Hard no. But his internalization of the experience that he had Um, dating and then losing Diane was a huge catalyst for Ted. So here's what happened. Diane Edwards was a beautiful young co-ed. And we're going to get to the problematic situation that is that word in a minute because I hate it so much. Mm -hmm. She had long brown hair that she parted in the middle. (laughs) This is a running theme. She was always impeccably dressed. Her family came from money. Diane was popular and charismatic, kind, caring, and smart. Everything Ted wanted in a woman, and he worshipped her. Okay, so a word about the term co-ed. It's, it's got to go. <laughs> a majority of universities have been co-educational for quite some time, and a female student is not an anomaly. No one looks around a modern college campus and goes, Holy shit, girls! Right. That's not a thing. Co-ed literally means co-educational, and so technically it could be used for any student, and yet it's not. Why? Women do not need a cute name. We go to college now just like everyone else, and we are just students. We belong there. We're not an implant or a new development or a cute little stunt. If you use this term, knock it the fuck off. Seriously. Yeah, I don't—I'm going to be honest. I was ignorant to what that word was. I think I just—I— let it kind of go because I know there's the co-ed killer yes and I didn't really understand what now I understand why co-ed is only used to refer to female college students and they started using it when they integrated universities to allow women to attend them so they'd be like there's a co-ed 
I gotcha. Uh, why do we still use that? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It's not to like me. this happened yesterday. It happened a great many years ago. Women are just students. I know. Throw it out. It's trash. Oh, I feel like it's also a term used to like make it sexier. Too. Absolutely, it is. Ew. Look at that young co-ed. I hate it. Huh? Yep. Now everyone's gonna notice it. Yell at people who use it. I will now. <laughs> Good. You have my permission. Okay, so now I'll get off this extremely tall pony I took for a test drive and keep talking about Ted. But it's so cute, the pony. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Very tall. (laughs) Diane would go on to describe Ted as a wishy-washy kind of guy who had little to no opinions of his own and who would just say how high whenever she told him to jump. At this point, Ted was shiftless. He had been studying Chinese. Okay. Yeah, at the University of Washington, but at that point, Ted had dropped out. Now, this is not the Ted of Legends. And there's a reason for that. It didn't get him anywhere. Diane made it clear that she didn't see a future with Ted, and therefore she ended their relationship. And this destroyed him. If he wasn't the man she wanted, well, he would goddamn make himself that man. Oh, jeez. Ted began volunteering in the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. He worked for Arthur Fletcher during his campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington state and campaigned for Republican Governor Dan Evans, because, of course, Ted was a great big Republican. Suddenly, he was a snappily dressed, charming, slick Republican politician's wingman. He cruised into 1969 as a Nixon Republican with a winning smile, just like that. Hmm. Hmm. So this kind of proves how quickly he can change himself, too, to kind of assimilate to any situation he wants to be in. But I do find it interesting that initially, the first woman he fell in love with, he just really fell in love with her. Yeah. Well, it, it makes sense. He tried that. It didn't work. Right. Many years later, psychologists would go on to say that 1969 was a pivotal year for Ted, the point in which he would abandon his attempts to live a normal and productive life and begin to listen to his darker impulses. So, Leslie, before we get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about the world in 1969? Sure. So, this was the year that members of Charles Manson's cult murdered five people, including Sharon Tate and her unborn baby. Oh, that case is painful. Yes. And what's funny is that, like— I don't know. His his women resemble the Manson girls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we landed on the moon. We did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> James Brown released five songs about popcorn. Really? Yeah. Popcorn? Yeah. I, I think like it must have— I tried to find them. Well, <laughs> it's easy to find, but I was trying to understand them, and it, it might stand for something else, probably. Please tell us what popcorn stands for. Filthy, filthy popcorn. I know. I do. I think it's, I might stand for sex, but I don't oh, know. No, popcorn sex. Who knew? Yeah. A woman named Vicki Jones was arrested for impersonating Aretha Franklin in concert. Jones's <laughs> impersonation was so convincing that nobody in the audience asked for a refund. That's so funny. I know. <laughs> now, guys, we have done 1969 before. Whoops. And that might have been a fact that I used before. I don't remember it. I don't think but, you did. Yeah, I didn't remember saying it, and either way, it was worth repeating. It's so good. <laughs> Say it in 10 episodes. I don't care. There was a commercially sold adult board game called Chug-A-Lug. Oh, no. <laughs> it involved smoking, drinking, uh, like beer, and marijuana. The object of the game is to collect 10 Alcoholics Anonymous dollars by drinking as much as you can. That's terrible. Penalties involved liquor store runs, so you better have enough in the house. <laughs> Removing clothing. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> or God. going to the bathroom. Don't break the seal, Holly. You'll get a penalty. <laughs> in the game, oh my God. you would pick a Chug-A-Lug card, 
And here's what some of the actions were. (laughs) Please tell me. I can't wait. Discuss possible forms of recreation on a waterbed. (laughs) So mind you, this is a whole, like, this would be you and me, like John and I coming over to hang out with you and Will, and this would be our board game night. (laughs) Oh, no. Just rolling around in the sloshing water. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. By your next turn, compose a poem about birth control. Get out of here. Discuss the use of jello as a lubricant. Ew! Guess the bra size of all the gals and take one drink for each wrong answer. <sighs> Give a vivid description of your favorite event at a nudist track meet. <laughs> I like the hurdles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the pole jump. The pole jump is. Oh no! Very scary. It's, I mean, it's a thrill. <laughs> Tensions are high when you're pole vaulting naked. Yes. God. And describe the sex appeal of a mustache. There is none, first of all. (laughs) Second of all, never use Jell-O as lube. It has sugar and you'll get a yeast infection. Continue. Yes. (laughs) No sugar down there. No. Yeah. It's bad. Even be careful with sugar scrubs. Agreed. Yeah. They don't belong down there. Nope. That's why it's all salt salt baths. Mm. That's why. Okay. Bill Cosby won the Man of the Year Award. Oh, fuck and that guy. And jokingly said that they should name it the Nice Guy As Far As We Know Award. <gasps> you oh, You heard my it God. there first, folks. You fucking pudding pop rapist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fashion <sighs> for women. <laughs> okay. That, that, that shocks me. Yeah. <laughs> there are several different styles, and it really depended on what social class you fell in, as, as it normally does. Um, and even what kind of movement you were in at the time in yeah, 1969. Many young ladies were into the miniskirts, knee socks, pinafore dresses, and short sh- uh, short shift dresses. Mm, yes, please. Right? I know. I love I Cute. love this style. <laughs> and and it was really popular, but it wasn't something that um, the fashion, like the head fashion in like Paris was mm-hmm. trying to go for, but women were kind of in an empowering movement at the time. And we're like, we just want to wear what we want to wear. And these clothes are made for us because a lot of these designs were made by other women. You probably so they had wanted, pockets. Some of them, yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah, so it was a London boutique style, and they were all there for it. So I love it. A lot of other fashion designers kind of followed the trends of that as well. Mm-hmm. And then Woodstock led to more of the hippie looks, like the peasant dresses, large Edwardian blouses, <laughs> <laughs> military jackets, fringe suede jackets, and paisley prints. The festival inspired the mass appropriations of Native American, Asian, namely Indian, and West African designs, in particular Indian print tunics, um, Pakistani trousers, and then I feel like I'm going to say this wrong, and you might know this word, African dashikis. You said it right, dashikis. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was <laughs> that was during that time. I thought you were going for Nehru jackets, and I was like, uh, which nope. one's it going to be? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um. And that, so those were the fashions mm-hmm. going on. The many households saw a rise in salaries, which meant young people could afford more expensive, colorful, and decorative clothes as well. So yeah, it must be nice. Yeah. TV shows. Uh, by this time, TV was still pretty male-dominated, but women were starting to get some stronger roles, and we're not just playing, like, the simple housewife anymore. So Bewitched was really popular at this time. Oh, I love and Bewitched. I know. And the leading lady had more powers than her husband, so that was yes. fun. Yes. It's still, this is still where, though, in the writing, they always had to have 
a smart and dumb character. And her husband always came off as goofy. Like, she just looked that way because her husband was so goofy. Yeah, like the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, That Girl was another show. Marlo Thompson, or Thomas, starred as That Girl, who was a groundbreaking independent career woman. Mm. Julia was the first sitcom to revolve around a single African-American leading actress. Oh, awesome. The Monster Mamas, <laughs> the Adams Family and the Munsters, were strong matriarchs who injected hints of counterculture thinking and individuality into the TV sitcom family. I remain that Morticia Adams is like the number one TV mom ever. Yeah. The Adamses are like a really strong, lovely family unit. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. People don't are. give them enough credit. No. Popular films were The Love Bug, Funny Girl, True Grit, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mm. And popular music was The Rolling Stones, James Brown, The Beatles, Johnny Cash, Simon and Garfunkel, Fleetwood Mac, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Pink Floyd, Elton John, and David Bowie. Oh, it was a good time it for music. It was a great time for music. And fashion was nuts. Women were starting to... Didn't Mary Tyler Moore's show also come out then? Yeah, the Dick Van Dyke show was still there and had just ended. Mm-hmm. And so the Mary Tyler Moore show was going to come So that's like a play. couple years later. Because I know mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore was a huge, big deal for the feminist movement. Because yes. she was like a career girl who right. like made her way in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think she was a big deal for them on the show. Mm-hmm. And then when she got her own, which is like my favorite show still. Mary Tyler Moore. I love that it show. It is a good yeah. one. Yeah. So that was that was the era. Yeah, man. There's and that era is very is was full of change and tension. Yes. And if you were someone that say liked the old ways, mm-hmm. it was probably very difficult to exist. If you weren't a feminist and you were a guy that wanted your wife to be Donna Reed. You were probably pretty angry. Right. And, I mean, all the young girls, and by young or ladies, I should say, like Mm -hmm. 18 to early 20s, they're seeing these movements and they're feeling kind of empowered, but they're still, they were still raised by a certain kind of generation. Yeah, by women that that tried to fit that Donna Reed mold. Mm -hmm. Quiet, helpful housewives. So feminism was on the rise. A book called Sex and the Single Girl preached that women could have premarital sex without it ruining them as people. Fantastic. Who what? knew? I had no idea. Yeah, I know. Women were getting higher educations, working outside the home, and driving their own cars. Oh, my. Oh, man. Can't trust a woman on the road. <laughs> and some men were left wondering why. As we said, men who were raised with a drastically different set of ideals, like Ted, did not always like seeing women flexing their individuality or their power or their opinions. It was a confusing time for some men. So, like, you know, fuck those guys. For real. But also, it was largely society's fault. Now, if it seems like you can't really get a handle on Ted, it isn't just you. No one, not his family, not his girlfriends, not his psychiatrists, lawyers, interviewers, or detectives working on his case ever could. I have done the best I could to shape the little crumbs we have of Ted into a person leading into his crimes, but the simple truth here is that there were a great many Teds, and most of them were incredibly likable. He never did explain why he did what he did. You can listen to his confessions all you want, and he'll tell you how, and when, and who, but never why, or what drove his compulsions, or where he got his explosive anger from. The best description I have gotten, and the only way I feel that I got to actually know who Ted Bundy was, even a little bit, was through the documentary Falling for a Killer, and that's on Amazon Prime. Everybody should watch it. Which approaches Ted through the eyes of his longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, her daughter, Molly, 
Ted's two surviving victims, and friends of the victims who did not survive. Oh, and the women who worked his case, because it was predominantly women who cracked his case. And we don't talk enough about that either. And yes, I know that Kendall isn't Elizabeth's real last name, but it's the one she chose post-Ted, and I think we can at least give her that. These women helped to form a picture of Ted that all the men in the world never could. Elizabeth, who goes by Liz now, was also a consultant on the film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, starring Zac Efron. (sighs) Liz said that she was quite pleased with the way the film portrays Ted, so if you have a major problem with it, it's because you want your monsters to look more like monsters and less like a guy you would date, and that's on you. And listen, that's okay, because it's absolutely fucking terrifying to think that a man you love and trust could have a double life, and that second life includes killing upwards of 30 women in the most vicious ways possible. None of us want to believe that. But that's why we started our podcast. Very true. That is why we started our podcast. And it's easier to call Ted a dumb white guy with an average face because we wouldn't fall for that. Our wits would keep us safe. But I urge you going into this to resist that line of thinking at all costs. It gets bad now. But I want, no, I need you to remember that this guy was not an obvious psychopath. Nor was he a bumbling white guy that just got away with stuff. And these women were not stupid or too nice. They were just like you and me. Acting like a man who had been hurt and needed help was not a dumb ploy. It was a precision manipulation of the impulse a vast majority of women have to nurture. That's what we do. The meme circulating right now that downplays every single step of his terrifying journey is just as dangerous as making Ted the hero of his story. Ted was a villain of the highest order, and that's not a position I respect, but it is one that I fear, and you should too. And this is why from here on out, I'm going at it from the women's perspective. Great. Some claim that just before the summer of 69, on Memorial Day weekend, Ted killed his two first victims while driving down the Garden State Parkway in Summers Point, New Jersey. Oh, my. I know. This is like our backyards. (laughs) Did you know that, Jersey people? No. Yeah, because most of us don't. Ted was in the area at that time. He had done a brief stint at Temple University. His family was from Pennsylvania, and the Jersey Shore is where Philadelphians go for their sun and sand. And there were two 19-year-old girls stabbed to death on the side of the Garden State Parkway that summer. Their case remains unsolved. And of course, this isn't enough to convict Ted, and spoiler alert, he is very dead, but it is compelling, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm compelled. A lot of people are. And a lot of the detectives on their case here in New Jersey really firmly believe it was Bundy passing through the area. And that was his first two kills. Okay. In the fall of 1969, Liz Kendall and her three-year-old daughter Molly had moved from their home in Utah to the Seattle area so that Liz could work as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. It was a good job, and she had access to childcare. After her previous divorce, Liz was hoping to forge a new life for her and Molly. And Liz was young. She was like 20, I think, at the time. And she had, had, she had gotten married and had Molly very, very young. It was a very rocky marriage, and she quickly got divorced. But Liz met Ted in a bar. He was sitting alone, and she approached him. She thought he was devastatingly handsome and looked sad. Plus, the man that she had been talking to previously was creeping her out. Plot twist, Liz. Oh, I know. <laughs> she and Ted ended up dancing and talking until Liz realized she had gotten very, very drunk. So Ted took her home and spent the night. The two slept in all of their clothes on top of the covers, and he didn't lay a hand on her. 
The next morning, Liz awoke to Ted in the kitchen making breakfast with Molly. This is how good he was. That's the perfect man. Yeah. He takes you home. He doesn't try anything. And then he's playing with your kid? Yeah. Not that you should trust a rando with your kid, but still. Mm -hmm. No one could want anything more than that. It's almost as if he had studied how to be a good man and then just used that formula to his advantage, isn't it? Oh. Mm -hmm. They teach that at the college? They teach that in the psychology program, probably, which is what he got into shortly after. That's right, yeah. From that point on, Ted seemed to just melt into their little family with ease. And, And circling back for a second, he would have watched all those shows. That you discussed. That's true. He would have seen all those men do those things. He would have known that's how you're supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be respectful. You're supposed to be a family man. You're supposed to take care of a girl. He knew the role he was supposed to play. And he right. did it very well. And again, this was after the other girl, right? Mm-hmm. This was after he had broken up with the other girl? Mm-hmm. Okay, so For he's now. in... Right. So he's in like a mindset of like how to be the perfect man. Yep. Okay. Molly also spoke of how she thought he was absolutely magic. He was playful and fun and loving and attentive. And she said, quote, as a kid, for someone to pay exquisite attention to your experience is what you're looking for. And that's what we're all looking for, Molly. (laughs) And he knew it. Ted would take Liz and Molly camping and rafting, much like his family had done with him as a child. And he would frequently bring along his 12-year-old brother, Rich, who sounds just like him. Oh. And it is unnerving because Rich is still alive. Oh, no. Yeah, he looks like a little bit like him, and he sounds exactly like the tapes of him. Um, he, I mean, he's nothing like him, obviously. Right, and this right. poor guy is, like, so shaky and nervous. But, like, imagine living with that legacy. How awful. I know. And I guess the same last name. Yeah, because he was Johnny Bundy's kid. So, yeah. Whew. And Rich says very similar things about Ted. He says that he was a wonderful big brother, that they were very close, he spent lots of weekends with them, and that he thought of Liz and Molly like family. Later, Liz would admit that Ted came into her life in a time when she didn't think much of herself. She was depressed, struggling after her previous divorce, because divorce still wasn't a thing that a lot of people did, and she was drinking quite a lot. In Liz's memoir, The Phantom Prince, she said, quote, I handed Ted my life, and I said, here, take care of me. And he did in a lot of ways. But I became more and more dependent upon him. When I felt his love, I was on top of the world. When I felt nothing from Ted, I felt that I was nothing. That's not a kind of woman you find by accident. Right. If you're a predator, you know where you're going to be successful. Absolutely. And I think he found her and used her as this family life that he wanted to portray on purpose. Yes. Because she would go along with anything because she was in having like a tough time in life and she needed to take care of this young child she had. So now it is 1971 and Ted is attending the University of Washington once again and this time he's studying psychology. An important fact we all need to remember when people downplay how manipulative he was. Ted knew how to get results. And initially his grades were excellent, but soon enough they began to tank again. But this somehow, against all odds, did not hamper his success in any way. Ted charmed everyone he met, especially Dr. Donna Schramm, Ph.D., who was running the rape prevention program in Seattle at the time and hired Ted to work on her crime prevention project. Did she look at his grades? Absolutely she did. But she said that Ted was so charming and so persuasive that his grades didn't matter. Oh, boy. Yep. She recalls how smooth he was and that he always spoke softly 
so that you had to come closer to him to hear what he had to say. Oh, I hate that. Yep. I hate that fact. This would bring you into his space where he had the control. So if you wanted to hear him, you had to be right next to him. I don't want to hear anything he has to say. No. <laughs> Although you probably would have. I know. You'd probably been like, yes, I'll be very close to you, Ted. Can you whisper a little softer? Exactly. <laughs> and it stunned me to observe how many people, Dr. Schramm included, used the adjective safe to define Ted. They mm. said he was safe. I trusted him in my home with my family. When that is the last thing Ted was. Oh, boy. But there are cracks in this perfect facade. For example, as I mentioned earlier, Ted loved to steal. Dr. Schramm noticed that he would steal anything he could get his hands on from the political offices he was working in. Staplers, paper, pens, <laughs> typewriters. Oh, man. He just walked out confidently with stuff and put it in his car. <laughs> and nobody stopped him because he was confident. Anything that wasn't nailed down went home with him. <laughs> I know. Confidence can get you farther in this life than anyone can ever imagine. All you have to do is do something with confidence, and you'll probably get away with it. I mean, how many times have you watched somebody walk out with – you know, like walk yep. confidently out with something, and you're like, I feel like I should say something, but, but they but look won't. Like they know what they're doing. They, and they're just, like, too confident. I don't want to get in it with them. Yeah. <laughs> Confidence is so— I'm sure there's a reason. It's very powerful, and we <laughs> underestimate that. Yeah. Acting like you belong doing what you're doing will make nobody question you. And maybe we shouldn't be telling the world this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I trust our listeners. Yeah. I, well, you know, I think it's a special kind of person. It's a person that doesn't really— think- That will take advantage of that? Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Because I know—I've always known that fact, and it's the hardest thing for me to do. Is oh, to me act too. with confidence. I'm the exact same way. Yeah. Maybe we just need to like confident it out. You know, let's, you know, let's try stealing a little bit. <laughs> we'll go down to the dollar store. It won't confidence. be that much money to pay it back. Both of us would go back and hide dollars somewhere to be like, shh, I paid for yeah. it. <laughs> I'm going to start with my kid's room. Just like confidently walk out of Did you ever shoplift something as a kid? Most of us did. Uh, did I? I don't know. I did. I'll incriminate myself. I did, and it was the guiltiest I've ever felt in my life. It was just a lip gloss. It was $3. Mm. And it was from Walmart, who can afford it. I accidentally shoplifted once, and then when I realized that I had, I had just passed. It was at a Costco, and Mm. I had a bunch of—it was expensive. It was all, like, a huge pack of batteries. Oh, okay. And it was underneath probably, like, toilet paper or something. And I realized after I had passed the attendant, Mm -hmm. who, like, checked everything, and— like, when I realized that the batteries were under there, I just, like, confidently rolled out. I was like, I just went for it. I was like, well, because otherwise it would have been, like, 50 bucks that I would have had to pay. And I was in college. I was like, mm. You took that confidence and it worked. But it was, like, an accidental. It was. <laughs> I don't know that had I been in the store still. That's so funny. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, I got away with it. Just go. I got to go home now. It's done. <laughs> I mean, I feel you on that. I had a little friend that shoplifted like crazy when I I was like 12. Yeah, we all had that bad girlfriend. And she eventually got arrested. Whoops. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course it was like, well, we all are doing it. And I stole one lip gloss. It was like a purple marble kiss lip gloss. Remember those little short ones? Yes. I totally felt guilty all the time forever about it. It was very scary. But I did wear it a lot. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, no, we had a full house episode about shoplifting, so I never did because I think, yeah, there's like a whole episode. Well, guys, it's go watch Full scary. House and don't don't steal, but if you do, do it with confidence. Yeah. I think it was Stephanie's friend kept stealing clothes. Of course it was Stephanie's friend. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Liz also remembered that Ted knew of a loading tunnel located under a local department store. This is wild. They would go to the store, park in this tunnel. So it was there for, like, trucks to unload and then, like, bring okay. inventory up. He would park in the tunnel, go up into the store, fill up his cart with everything he wanted, go down into the tunnel, load up the car, drive the fuck away. Just full cartloads of stuff. <sighs> and nobody ever noticed. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> Stealing was easy back then. How did stores even survive? And apparently this went on, for like, he did, this was routine. And Liz was like, I just thought stealing was cool. And, like, that's what we did. Yeah. Bless her. Because she was like, well, this good man is doing this. You know, like, we need groceries He's providing. And stuff. Yeah. And this is how he can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was a student. So he wasn't making it to the a man. lot of money. It was a whole movement happening. Mm-hmm. F the man. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So then after that, but aside from the stealing— his life went on in a seemingly wholesome manner for some time. Ted graduated from the University of Washington and was accepted to both Seattle University School of Law and the University of Utah's law school. Not based on his unimpressive LSAT scores, which people love to point out, but on the strength of his letters of recommendation from both his professors and local politicians alike. Hmm. And Ted's LSAT scores sucked because he stopped paying attention in class because he wanted to murder people, not because he couldn't get good grades. Well, that'll do it. Yeah, you know, when you're thinking about murder all the time, it's hard to pay attention. It sure is. It's like me and snacks. Oh, I love snacks. Me too. I can have a snack right now. <laughs> anyway, in 1973, while he was seeing Liz still, he reconnected with Diane Edwards. Oh. Mm-hmm. During a trip to California with the Republican Party, he courted Diane, still with Liz, who was now super interested in this young man on the cusp of a legal and political career. He continued to date Diane pretty seriously, even after he had begun law school in Seattle. He had her come out to Seattle to stay with him a couple of times. You see, while Ted did stay the night at Liz's house a lot of time, they never moved in together, which was obviously key when it came to keeping, like, big giant secrets like his other girlfriend and murdering a bunch of people. Um, but in this case, it, it let him become briefly quite serious with Diane. They went as far as discussing marriage, something he flatly refused to do with Liz, who was desperate to marry him. Ted even introduced Diane at a party as his fiance. Diane, the sparkling personality and the long, dark hair, parted down the middle. After Diane had given in and found herself in love with Ted, he completely cut off their communication and relationship with no warning at all. When Diane finally got a hold of him and asked him what was happening, Ted, of course, gaslit the hell out of her and said he had no idea what she meant. And they never spoke again. When asked about this, Ted simply said that he wanted to prove that he could marry her. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. And he could have. Liz never knew Diane was in the picture. And their life continued on, business as usual. That is until we hit January 4th, 1974. We are now in the home of Karen Sparks. She shares her apartment with a male roommate who is asleep down the hall, just as she is. It is very late at night. And a man enters Karen's home and creeps into her room. He dislodges part of her metal bed frame and beats her over the head with it, smashing in her skull, then uses the same metal rod 
to forcefully ram into her vagina, splitting her bladder nearly in two, and then leaves her for dead. All the while, her roommate slept just breaths away. Karen could not move or speak and remained in this state for 20 hours, which I didn't know. I didn't either. Until her roommate, looking for her, entered her room and found her. (gasps) Like torn to ribbons in a pool of her own blood. Wow. Karen somehow survived this attack. Yeah, Karen's still alive. And Ted, whom I think we have all put together as the man in question, returned home to Liz and Molly to make pancakes before work. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Karen has lost 50% of her hearing and 40% of her vision. She suffered seizures and debilitating headaches, countless, countless, um, constant, sorry, ringing in her ear, and countless surgeries to replace the damage, not even mentioning the mental anguish. Karen was unable to press charges at the time due to lack of evidence and simply went on with her life. She stayed under the radar and said, quote, women like us, women that have been attacked, women that have been raped, women that are survivors, they kept their secrets to themselves. She said, I don't know why. We're taught to just get on with it. That is what pulled me into this documentary. Yes. And it changed everything that I thought about this case. I just, like, I had to sit with that for a while Mm -hmm. and think about how true it was. And we are just taught to get on with it. And so we do. And so she did, living quite a successful life and keeping the attack from her children because she said, quote, to them, she was just mom. Mm -hmm. She said she didn't want to be known as a victim. She didn't want to let her attack define her. So she tried to put it behind her and just moved forward as much as she could. She's pretty, she's remarkable. I would say so, yeah. Oh my God, that's so terrible. I know. This is about when I started sobbing and didn't stop through the rest of this. I forgot about her. Mm -hmm. There was never any motive listed for Karen's attack. She was just a kind and pretty girl with long, straight brown hair parted down the middle. Hmm. This seemed to be such a terrifying freak occurrence. But then on January 31st, there was another one. Linda Healy was a welcoming, kind, ambitious, and vibrant young student attending Washington University. She loved to sing, she loved to perform, and she loved her family. She lived with a handful of other college girls who all shared responsibilities for the house. On the night of January 31st, Linda was planning a big dinner for all of her housemates that she invited her parents to. And they were all like really excited to play house and they were planning this menu. And Linda stayed out late talking to one of her housemates about how they were going to like set the table and what they were going to buy. She was really excited to play host and was chatting long into the night. Linda lived in a, her her bedroom in the house was in the basement and she shared it um, with one other girl. And that girl went to bed that night before Linda did. And the girl took care to lock the basement door because there was a door that led from outside into the basement, like there is in a lot of houses, and then went to bed. The next morning, her roommate woke up to the sounds of Linda's alarm buzzing incessantly at 5.30 in the morning. She went over to like be like, what the hell, Linda, turn off your alarm. But Linda was nowhere in sight. The bed was neatly made, the room was impeccably clean, and everything was in its place as though Linda had never come to bed. The basement door, however, was now unlocked. Linda's roommates called the police right away. They called the damn cops, who sure did not want to come out and investigate. They kept saying that maybe she just went home with a boy, or, and this is, this is something the police actually said to her roommates, maybe she snuck out to get an abortion. What? Mm-hmm. Because how shitty can you be? Yep, that's a direct quote from the police. Uh, I always hear crazy things that they say, mm-hmm. and it's 
my But gosh. Linda's roommates insisted that something was wrong, and so did her parents. Obviously. And eventually, yeah, because it was. And eventually, the police came out. When they investigated her room further, they removed the bedclothes and discovered a large bloodstain on her mattress. And then, rifling through her closet, they found buried in the back a blood-soaked nightgown. Mm, so it, she was having an abortion. She was in her room. Yeah. Yeah. It was as though someone had entered Linda's room in the middle of the night, attacked her, removed her clothing, covered their tracks, dressed her, because there were clothes missing of hers, and then took her away. Hmm. And that's exactly what he did. You see, Ted liked to keep the bodies. He brought them into the woods where he would continue having sex with them for days. Yep. He would buy them clothes and change their outfits. He would put makeup on them and paint their nails. And then, just for good measure, take some Polaroids. According to a later interview, Ted said that he took his pic- he took those pictures because he didn't want all of his hard work to go to waste. I hate him. Yep. How did she die? Most likely blunt force trauma or a strangulation during the act of rape because Ted liked to kill them while he was raping them. Ted then once again went home and slept soundly, returning to his life, to Liz and Molly, and to normalcy in the wake of utter violent chaos. Linda Healy's disappearance did rock her community, though, and people went out searching her all searching for her for days and nights. It was around this time that Liz noticed Ted began to change towards her, to cool off and pull back his affection. He would go weeks without seeing her and Molly, which was something he had never done before. The pair would get into screaming matches as well, and Liz thought for certain that Ted was seeing someone else. She wondered what she had done to warrant such treatment, why she no longer was interesting to Ted. This thinking... I recognize this thinking. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. I have had boyfriends who cheated on me, several of them with women I was very close to, and I never once thought that they were just not good guys. Every time I wondered what I had done to drive them away. That's common thinking with women. Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't be. We should try to stop that. I don't know how, but it is. Mm -hmm. It, It is a default for a lot of us. For a lot of women, and I would also say in this kind of relationship, it's it's a person that doesn't feel like they deserve any better. And so it could be a woman or a male. Yeah. And it's just that mindset. Everybody deserves something good. And yes. you, de- you always deserve better than what you think you do. So just Ooh. try to remember that. Yes. That is so true. And that was so very much Liz. She, yeah. she did not think enough of herself. And she um, openly admits in many interviews that she was extremely dependent on Ted. She said, quote, I handed him my life. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be something, and, and we should keep this in our mind going forward because there are signs that Ted is doing some pretty horrible things. But, like, if you were her, would you pay attention to those? Right, because she is thinking more about herself and what she's doing yeah. rather than what he's doing. And, and the man that she has created in her mind that is yes. Ted. Mm-hmm. I don't know what makes us think this way or how it creates a bullseye on our head for men who know how to exploit it because it certainly does. But I know what happens, and that it's a terrible spiral that is nearly impossible to get out of. Meanwhile, a 19-year-old student from Evergreen College disappears on March 12th. Donna Manson was a free-spirited hitchhiker. Her friends didn't even report her missing until she had been gone for six days. They figured she had traveled somewhere on a whim. In reality, Ted had most likely picked her up in his car and killed her in the woods. There would be no confirmation of what happened to her until Ted confessed to her murder shortly before his execution. Mm. But time marches on forward. On April 18th, Washington State student Susan Rancourt went missing. Susan was a dedicated student. Her whole short life had been devoted to learning. She loved reading and science and even volunteered with the campus security. 
On the night in question, Susan had a meeting in the library and left by herself to walk home. She never arrived. Susan was not a party girl. She did not occasionally spend the night out, and she would not just go somewhere without telling anyone. The next morning, her roommate called the police and notified her parents immediately, and a furious search for Susan began. Even the area Boy Scouts were tapped to comb the surrounding area looking for footprints and any possible evidence. There are videos of these, like, little eight-year-old Boy Scouts, like, out with their magnifying glasses looking for stuff in the woods. Oh, you know. Susan's friends just remember her yellow raincoat. She was wearing it when she disappeared. And one of them just keeps talking about how she had visions of finding this yellow raincoat. Oh, so sad. Yeah. The problem here was, no matter how many people were working on the case, the different area districts would not work together. So even if there had been a few little things to go on, they would never have been tied together. But rumors began to circulate that a man with a cast on his arm had been walking around the campus library asking for help. And all it would take was one good Samaritan, say, a studious girl who helped campus security with long, straight hair parted down the middle. Hmm. This was Ted's favorite device, acting injured and asking for help. He had various casts and bandages, even a set of crutches that he would use. He knew that most people are innately good and that they would be happy to help someone in distress. He knew that those girls would have an instinct to help, to nurture, to take care, and that he looked safe to them. This was a carefully baited trap. So careful, in fact, that this device was used in the movie Silence of the Lambs when serial killer Buffalo Bill pretends he has a broken arm and is struggling to load a couch onto his, onto his truck. And who comes to his aid? A young girl, of course. Mm-hmm. Then on May 6th, Oregon State University student Kathy Parks went missing. Now, Ted describes a lot of his abductions himself in his confessions and in conversations with various biographers. And this one he described in the third person, which I found kind of interesting to the author of Conversations with a Killer, Stephen Michaud. So this is the only time I'm going to give Ted the microphone, and here is the event in his own words, because I want us all to take note of how clinical and casually he recounts what happened. So Stephen Michaud says, would she be walking across campus or sitting in a bar maybe? Ted says, she could have been sitting in a library studying. She could have been sitting in a cafeteria studying. She was supposed to be depressed or lonely or something. See? He's, he knows what he's looking for. She might seek out company just to take her mind off her problem or her loneliness or depression. Let's say she was having a snack in the cafeteria, and he just sat down next to her and began talking, representing himself to be a student there, and suggesting they go out somewhere to get a bite to eat or to get a drink. Either he was convincing enough or she was depressed enough to accept his invitation. Of course, once she got in the car, then he had her in a position where he wanted her and could then assume control over her. A jog down to a local tavern in Corvallis would probably be the farthest we would expect her to accept as a plausible kind of trip. So he even clocked how far away he could get without the girls noticing. Hmm. Stephen Mashad said, would he be patient enough to go to the tavern? And Ted said, it is unlikely. He wouldn't want to be exposed to a situation where he would be seen in her presence, certainly no more than necessary. Uh, Mashad said, he's still in a stage where alcohol is involved. If he had been drinking, wouldn't it be evident to her? Ted said, it's odd that some people are able to detect the effect of alcohol on people more than others. Someone who meets a stranger who's under the influence of alcohol, outside of the fact that it might be on his breath, subtle changes in his behavior wouldn't be that evident. We're not talking about some stumbling drunk. Because a lot of times he liked to have a few beverages before he went out on the prowl. Yeah. Mashad said, what would transpire once they're in the car? Ted said, 
He would not want to confront her in the car in an area where a struggle would be witnessed by anyone just casually strolling down the street or something. So once he had gained her confidence, then, on the way to the tavern they were going to, he said that he had just remembered that he had to pick up the finished copy of his thesis or something from the typist, and then drive out to a remote location. At that point, he would accost her without any fear of attracting any attention. That's exactly what happened to um, Roberta Kathleen Parks. But the way he describes it as a formula, I found both interesting and horrifying. June 1st was a particularly busy day for Ted. Liz and Molly were Mormons, if I didn't mention this previously. It doesn't really, they're not like practicing Mormons, but she comes from a Mormon family and that's their faith. And it was customary for them to baptize their children at eight years old. And Molly was eight. So they were arranging for her baptism and her whole family was coming into town. And meanwhile, Ted knew her whole family. Her family loved him, especially her father. Her father loved Ted and really hoped that they were going to get married. So Ted met up with Liz and her whole family the night before the baptism and treated them all to pizza. But after they finished, he said he had to hurry um, off to like a meeting or something and left. He did hurry over to the University of Washington's campus, where young Phyllis Armstrong was standing outside her sorority house. Theta house, to be precise. Nice. Phyllis recalls that a man with a cast on his arm pulled up to her and got out of his car. He had a gas can in his hand and mumbled something about running out of gas and also having trouble with his car. And she, he asked if she would help him. She, of course, defaulted to, yeah, I'll help you. That's how women were taught to react. He asked her to get in the car to help him start it while he went under the hood. And I believe the hood of a VW Bug is in the back, right? Isn't the engine in the back, not the front? I think so. I think it's like a weird thing with a Volkswagen Bug, so he would have, like, walked around the back. She wouldn't have just seen him doing things. Okay. Phyllis got in the car, and as soon as she got in, she noticed, first of all, that the passenger seat was missing. She sat there for a second before feeling an awful, creeping sensation that she had just made a terrible mistake. Sensing that something was wrong, she jumped out of the car and ran away, shouting an apology into the air. I feel like that would have been me. <laughs> Get away! <laughs> Phyllis Armstrong never really spoke about the incident she had with the man outside her sorority house, not even to her best friend and Theta sister, Georgianne Hawkins. Phyllis thought she'd made she'd get made fun of, that the man was just looking for help and she got spooked for no reason and people would be like, come on, man. So she went on with her life. Phyllis and George had been best friends for years, ever since the girls were daffodil princesses together in their hometown. As such, they got the opportunity to travel, to learn. She talks about them having lunch in the Space Needle and become very close to one another. In college, they rushed the same sorority and went to all the same parties. They had a bright and beautiful future ahead of them. On the evening of June 11th, 1974, Georgianne went to see her boyfriend and never came home. The police were immediately called the next morning when she failed to show up for a final exam. And I want to make a special note of this. Many of the girls were reported missing as soon as possible. These were not events that were always sat on for a while, but the police still failed to take them seriously. They would always claim that these girls were partying or that they had gone home with a boy or were too intoxicated to make their way back home. They said that Georgianne looked like a party girl and would probably be back with her tail between her legs. Oh, I mm-hmm. hate that. Because they probably just, she was probably just a pretty girl, so she has she to be a party was girl. beautiful. The police had loosely considered that these disappearances could be connected, but they also were laughing off women not coming home at night. So clearly they weren't taking it too, too seriously. Now, while the police were dicking around with these cases, campus police officer Cheryl Martin, who was a fucking superhero, had made a connection. 
She thought that these women had all been taken by the same man. She suspected that he was good-looking and that he would abduct them and kill them. Cheryl noticed that all the abductions happened along the route of the recently developed interstate and that one man could have easily traveled this road and committed all of these crimes. The man with the cast. And we all know Cheryl was right, but local police didn't run with this theory the way that they should have. At least not yet. But Georgian was a tipping point. And at this time, even if the cops weren't serious enough, the media knew a story when they saw it. And Georgian's disappearance was splashed all over the news. People began to see a pattern and women were afraid. At the time, the Watergate hearings were also national news and broadcasts cast live over the radio. Millions of Americans tuned in to hear them. And during the hearings, news bulletins would break through. And these bulletins were almost always about missing girls. So the country was catching on. Mm -hmm. And so was Liz. Poor Phyllis was also connecting the dots to her own experience. And this, to me, is one of the saddest parts of this. She said, quote, we didn't know that predators like that were out there. And why would they? This was a new type of fear, one that women were never allowed to experience out in the open before. Women all over the country were dropping out of college and moving back in with their parents, terrified that they could be next. And Phyllis makes me so sad because she had that experience and then her best friend. I know. Was taken and killed. She, and I mean, any interview with her is just wretchedly heartbreaking to watch her talk about Georgian and how much she loved her and how much guilt she takes with her. Oh. Ted had dropped out of his Seattle law school back in the winter because murdering is very distracting and you can't also focus on law school. Right. Way too much. But he told Liz that he just couldn't concentrate. He was having trouble in school, which she later realized was because his impulse to murder was so distracting that he couldn't study. Mm -hmm. She does connect those dots on her own much later. He told her that he would be starting again at the University of Utah Law School in the fall, and he did not invite her to go with him, though she desperately wanted to go. Hearing the news bulletins and the description of the man in question, Liz had a terrible feeling that she might know exactly who they were talking about. But she didn't want to believe it. She and Ted had been fighting and things were not good, but she didn't want them to be over. She says that she didn't want to say goodbye. Liz began drinking heavily, trying to self-medicate herself into believing that it all might be all right and that she just was overreacting and making people look like Ted that weren't. Until... Ted took Liz and Molly on a rafting trip on the 6th of July. Now remember, this is all 1974. A new year hasn't even ticked over. <laughs> Everyone was having a perfectly nice time until, without provocation, Ted pushed Liz off the back of the raft and stared at her in the icy cold water with dead eyes. Liz struggled to get back on the raft and out of the cold river, but Ted didn't help her at all. She eventually climbed back in, and Ted said nothing of the incident. She figured it was a joke that she didn't understand. Yeah. But things had changed, and Ted had changed. A little over a week later, on July 16th, a beautiful sunny day broke over the rainy city of, of Seattle. Locals were quoted as saying that when a day like that came along, you took advantage of it. I guess, you know, pretty rainy there. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Lake Sammamish was a local resort area. It was kind of hokey and old-timey, but in the summer, there was nothing like it. The lake had a lovely beach and areas to go swimming, sailing, canoeing, and fishing. There were fireworks and activities, and a local company was having a big giant picnic there that day. There were over 40,000 people swarmed in that area on that sunny day to take it all in while they could. Several revelers reported seeing a young, good-looking man with a shock of dark, curly hair wearing white shorts with a red stripe on them approaching young women. He had a cast on his arm and was observed saying, Hi, I'm Ted, and then asking them for help with his catamaran. 
because this motherfucker was so confident that he used his own name. Right. He approached a woman named Janice Ott, who had just arrived. Witnesses reported that Janice looked annoyed because she just got there and she wanted to have fun. She wanted to spend her time with her friends, but this dude was trying to get her to help him. But eventually, he got the better of her, and she agreed to go off and help him. Ted later bludgeoned her to death in his Volkswagen Beetle and then drug her off into the woods. Obviously, after a short time, her friends, Janice's friends, reported her missing. A scant four hours later, Denise Nasland, who was at the lake with her boyfriend, disappeared when she left her group of friends to use the restroom. She fell for the same trick as Janice and met the same fate. So they think what happened with them was in the car, he like bludgeoned them possibly to death in the head, then took them, and if they weren't dead, he took them out into the woods and strangled them while he was raping them. Mm -hmm. Either way, he had sex with those bodies. Right. We don't really know the order because we'll find out later that bodies were found, but they were well decomposed by the time police got to them. Right. And this is why women go to the bathroom together. Yes, that is another very good hint. Mm-hmm. We do go to the bathroom together, and if you don't, maybe you should. Yeah. Um, it's not just for the dark rituals that we do in there. Which we do. Yes. Every time. <laughs> so after he took Denise Nasland, one hour later, Ted called Liz, who he had been estranged from for some time since that rafting incident, and said he wanted to take her to dinner. But okay. in the middle of the meal, he said he wanted to go home because he felt sick and needed to sleep. After Lake Sammamish, there were, now, police sketches and a name connected with this guy. Are they shit sketches? Yes, they are. (laughs) But they were enough for some women. And our hero, Cheryl Martin, rushes to get those sketches and the name and description of Ted and this car, which they mistakenly labeled bronze, a fact that will come back later, into campus newspapers, along with a hotline you could call and her office address if you wanted to come talk to her with any information regarding the case And she ran this in the campus newspaper. Just a day later, it received national press coverage. Hmm. And it worked. Cheryl had several women seek her out to tell her that they too had encountered the man with the tan beetle and the cast on his arm. They had met Ted. He had asked them for help, tried to get them into his car, and they declined. These women now realized how close they had been to death. Now Cheryl had proof. This was the same man who had taken all the other girls, the same man who had been terrorizing women for months. These were not accidents. They were planned attacks. And she knew there would be more. Now, is this all before we had a serial killer? Yeah. We don't have the term serial killer until, I believe, 1980. Okay. So, yeah. And that's my cliffhanger. Oh. That's where we're leaving off. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um... Next next week, in part two, we'll get into the rest of the murders. There are quite quite a few more. Yes. Though I don't have details on every single one of them. Some of them are women um, who we only know a couple facts about. Okay. But we, we will say all their names because right. I find that very important. And we'll talk about <sighs> Ted's incarceration and he escaped jail a few times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't get easier from here on in, but I figured this was a good place to stop. Um so people could digest what they okay. heard so far. Yeah. And I guess to just remember that, again, at this time, there weren't, we didn't know what a serial killer was. No. And so that's probably why the police were like, it's not just one person. Yeah. And this woman was like, it's one person. Yeah. This woman was amazing. <laughs> and she didn't really give up on, like, on this theory. And I believe she knew Susan Rancourt. Okay. Because... That case was, like, very personal to her, and she really wanted to see Susan found. 
even if it was remains, no matter what it was, she wanted to know what had happened to Susan. And she strongly believed that whoever had taken her had done this to all these other girls. Right. Um, and later on in, in the next installment, we'll talk about how, you know, the FBI officer on his case was also a woman, the okay. only woman that other women like Liz could go and talk to. So women played such a strong role in this case, not just as victims. And I, I just don't think we pay enough attention to that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited for the second half. This was great, Holly. Oh, thank you so much. Ooh. I have so many feelings, you guys. Yeah. This case, um, we all know so, so much about it. I mean, you said mm-hmm. you, would, you had gone down the documentary hole with Bundy right. last year. We have all, we've all seen it. We've all read the story countless times. But I just, I never realized how wrong it was framed. I, I never realized how much we just looked at him as like a rock star murderer. Right. And while the, the image is earned, the image is dangerous. You shouldn't change the image. You shouldn't change the fact that people think he's a rock star murderer. We should say that a rock star murderer is more dangerous than you think. Yes. And that's kind of what I wanted to lean into. And, um, and I hope you guys felt some feelings. I've, I felt them multiple times. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I definitely I, teared up a couple. Yeah, I was very emotional going through this whole thing unexpectedly. And I think that we should be. Mm-hmm especially women listening to this, kind of like rocked my foundation a little. So with that, I'm just going to leave us off. Okay. I don't think we have any toasts yet this week. Not this week, no. Um, And I, I don't want to put an end cap on it. Okay. Because we don't know. But um, we will see you next week, Fiends. Okay. Bye, Bye. Fiends. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Happy one year anniversary. Happy one year, Holly.